So uh, just a couple things that we're gonna, I want to describe for us, because we're, we're taking a break from a series, and just this is a one-off, a, a special sermon that we're going to talk about uh, mental illness. And, and the, around the city over the last number of weeks, churches around the city have been part of uh, this great organization called Thrive NYC, put together by the mayor's wife to help raise awareness around issues of mel- mental illness. And this is a, a prevalent problem. They, they, many would call this an epidemic that's going on in our, in our country. And I'm reminded of this all the time as I'm traveling around the city. I don't know if you've had one of these moments in your life where you, I, you get on the train, and I, I, was, I was on the train, and there was, the, there was a man standing right in the door, you know, and there's often those people that just won't get out of the way, right? You get in, and you're just like, like, are you going to go that way? And they're just standing right in the middle, right? So I get a, I kind of move, maneuver around him, get on the train, and I sit down. What I realized when I get onto the train was this man was standing there, and he was talking to himself. Now, you know, we have actors, actresses in the city. We have people that are rehearsing lines. We have to, so you recognize there there's, could be a lot of things going on in this man's situation. But as I got on the train, I was, sitting beside, I was sitting very close to him. There was a woman that was also watching him, and she was kind of like looking at him. She had a furrowed brow. She's looking kind of like concerned, looking down on him. And so I was kind of observing, watching him. And I also noticed as I sat down that everyone else on the train was sitting very far from this man. So I don't know if, again, if you've ever got on a train before, if you've ever had this experience, you get on the train and you get in and there's someone on the train and then the rest of the train seems like they want nothing to do with that person and then they're sitting on the other edge of the train. So this was kind of that situation. So I was observing and I was watching this man. He was talk, seemingly talking to himself and, he, and, and then he got... He, Eventually, we were, I was watching. The woman kept looking at him, making faces, and then he got off the train. Then she looked at him, and then she looked at me and said, well, that guy was weird, like out loud. And one of the things that I've been thinking about over the last number of months and th- this year committing to prayer is I felt like the Lord was impressing on my heart in that moment to say maybe he just needed someone to listen. I didn't say it. I felt convicted afterwards because I recognized that, that was a moment not only to perhaps speak life into that situation, but to remind people that we live in the midst of a city where some people are just craving someone to hear them. Just craving someone to spend some time and listen to their heart cries. And so I remember just, the Holy Spirit reminded me, I have to step into those moments more. I have to be willing to step into those moments more. And so maybe you've watched a scene unfold like that on the train, on the sidewalk, at your work, maybe in your family. Maybe, unfortunately, you've faced one of those situations. You've faced a situation where you've been crying for help and watched as the rest of your friends and family, co-workers, neighbors, have distanced themselves from you. You found yourself alone and isolated. This morning, we're going to take time to talk about this issue that many, again, are calling a crisis. And just to remind us, we're going to talk about some heavy things today, but in the midst of talking about heavy things, we're reminded that God cares for us in the heavy things. He meets us in the heavy things. And so I was reminded, yesterday, a small group of us met in the room back there to talk about how we as a faith community can work together to address these issues by being on the front lines of providing care to those facing mental illness and mental crises and struggles in our community. So I, we spent some time talking about these things, provided some resources, and I was, as I was walking home, I got a text message from a friend. 
her daughter goes to my daughter's school, and she's connected to a bunch of schools. And, and she told me, did you hear what happened at MS-447? And I said, no, what happened? The school counselor committed suicide in the building. In the building. This is a school that's three blocks from us, right? It's right tucked back in here, just a few blocks from here. So what, what it was reminding me of in that moment is no one is immune. Nobody is immune. And as a faith community, as a church, what we have to recognize is we have to be a community that offers hope because there's people walking around in crisis around us all of the time. All of the time. The second thing I want us to be aware of is we're in a unique space. Recovery House of Worship, what makes us beautiful is we have the opportunity every Sunday to be reminded by God that we are both equally being helped by God and being invited by God to be the helper. We are both being helped by God and invited by God to be the helper. That one of the things, I was, I, I was coming in pre- preparing for the sermon today, and, and I, when I'm in by myself, I drove in this morning uh, with a friend who had lent us a car, and I was driving and just singing, and I just sing out loud in the car. And one of the things, one of the prayers I, I pray in, in preparation for these moments is, God, use me. Right? When we talk about this idea of use me. But the beautiful thing is, God doesn't really want to use us. Because right? use sounds more like um, utilitarian. Like it sounds more like he's just like, we're just a part and he's just moving us the way he wants. A better way to think about the scriptures, because of us being children of the living God through relationship with Jesus and invited into his family, he sees fit to partner with us. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful but important reminder because if we're partnering with God, we have responsibility, right? So that doesn't dismiss our responsibility, but God doesn't just use us, right? We're not just some toy that he just tinkers with when he feels like. He sees fit to gloriously invite us into his mission to partner with him in what he's doing in our workplaces, in our communities, in our families, in our schools, in our, amongst our friends, And so today we're going to realize that we're both the helped and the helper as we consider this. So just today, a couple of stats to help us frame what we're doing. Then we're going to look at a scripture. We're going to stand in a moment with God's word. But just to recognize, one in five New Yorkers are dealing with some form of mental illness. One in five New Yorkers. Some in this room, perhaps, coming in today battling depression, serious anxiety, bipolar disorder, paranoia. My hope today is that you find help and hope in Jesus. Help and hope in Jesus. And that we as a church would remember that the opportunity provided for us as we enter into the spaces of people's brokenness is reminded that we have real hope to offer, but we need to trust God's method for providing the hope. And so I'm going to invite us as we do to stand now as we read the text. This is Mark 5, verses 1 to 17. And why we stand, again, is a reminder, just reverence. We, we, we believe that this is literally the words of God, the words of God. And so we, we want to submit them, ourselves to them as we hear them together. So this is Mark 5, starting in verse 1. Then, they, then it went across the lake to the region of the Gennesarenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When Jesus saw from when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep banks into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is God's word. You may be seated. One, one more preface that I want to make sure you understand. This is a difficult text. There's a lot to consider in these verses. And I'm not going to get into some of the very difficult, nuanced things that, that are presenting themselves in this text. So if you want to know more about some of the other issues that are going on in this text, Pastor Gus, Pastor Edwin, myself can provide you with any other resources to give you some more information about what's going on more specifically. With all that, I just want to pray because again, we're specifically going to talk about some heavy things and consider what God has to say to us, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, my simple prayer is this, that your word would ring out from what we hear today, that I would simply be your vessel to share your word in a way that helps us see you more clearly, see ourselves more clearly, rejoice in who you are. But beyond just hearing words, Jesus, you want us to Obey your word. You want us to be in greater ways demonstrating your love to one another and to the world. And so I pray that you'd motivate us and inspire us and teach us where you want us to to grow and to change because you love us and want more for us. And so I pray that you'd be with us and meet with us, move amongst us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's uh, sermon is entitled Hope for the troubled soul, hope for the troubled soul. But before we realize the hope that we provide, we need to accept and recognize the help we try and give, the help we try and give. Now, uh, I, it's a sort of a play on words with a, a, a young adult's book called The Hate You Give. Some of you might know about it. It's based on a book that describes the situation with a young student that has to code switch living in in the projects in, in South Central LA, and then going to a private school um, and having to code switch, and she watches one of her, her friends face a very difficult situation. And so we think that we're helping people sometimes, right? But we're, in fact, we're not. And so we have to recognize that if we really want to provide hope for troubled souls, we have to recognize what kind of help are we actually giving people. 
And so as we look at verses 3 and 4, what we have to recognize first is that the, ho- the help we give sometimes is more about pushing people down. Pushing people down or pushing people away. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, No one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. You see, this man was living in a cemetery. Now, for some of us, that might not seem so strange because in New York, you can visit cemeteries, right? You can go to Greenwood Cemetery. There's visits and tours and things. You can go around and visit things. But in the Jewish day and age, to go to a cemetery meant that you became ritually unclean. You could not be among the dead. And so what this man was doing was living in an unclean place. And so people thought that because this man was such a disaster because he was such a mess, because he had so much stuff going on in his life, they thought the best place to do was to push him away. To push him away. Now, to think about this in terms of the way that it would be in our day and age, this would be like telling someone to go live in a garbage dump. Now, we know this because of the way that the Spirit is described in the text, right? And again and again, when these people are described in these moments as having spirits, the word that's used to describe the Spirit is unclean unclean. And so what happens is unclean people belonged in unclean places. That was their solution. The solution was to push them away, to put them somewhere where they didn't bother anybody, where I didn't have to worry about them, where they weren't going to hurt me or others. This was their solution. See, the mindset grew out of being more concerned with catching whatever this person had rather than caring for them. Let me say that again. The concern for these people was more about catching what he had than about caring for him as a person. I, I, one of the things I get to do is uh, I, I work on this public art project called Community Heroes, and we recognize com- heroes in unsung neighborhoods. In Farragut houses, there's a, a reverend named Reverend Joyce McDonald, a, a heroin survivor. She re- contracted HIV through heroin. She gloriously was saved. Now she's a minister at Church of the Open Door down in Farragut. I mean... Church is fire, fire. And she shares the story about how when she contracted HIV in the 80s, right? If you remember what that was like and what was going on in our country, your friends and family would push you to the side. They would say, you're, you're on your own. You are on your own. And so again, just to give us a sense of what's happening in this man's life, as this man was experiencing trauma in his life, these people thought that the best solution was to push him to the outskirts, to push him away. You see, it's like another way to think about it is like, it's like the junk drawer in our house, right? Y'all have the junk drawer, right? Somewhere in your house where you just know, I don't know where I can put that, but it's going to put it here. Just put it there, and it just keeps putting more and more and more stuff in there. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to deal with it. Maybe at some point I might need to use that thing, but it just needs to go away, right? And so that you have the junk drawer, right? These people wanted to put the man in the junk drawer, put him away, and hope that we didn't have to think about him anymore. Now, see, looking at the text, some of us might think in this moment that the reason that they did this because they were afraid for their life, right? It says in the text again that he had chains on his arms and on his hands and on his feet, and, he, and it said he'd violently break the chains. But nowhere in the text does it actually say that he was hurting peop- other people. In fact, if you look at the text, it says that primarily he was hurting himself. But here's what happens. We live in a day and age where this is unfortunately all too familiar. 
people with mental illness in our city wind up in prison. 64% of individuals in prison have some type of mental illness. And so we live in a society where if someone has a mental illness, we call the cops on them and they wind up in jail. And we know, if you know anything about prison and you know anything about our mental health situation in this country, they're not getting any help in prison. And in fact, some of them are facing solitary confinement, which accentuates the problem. PTSD, social isolation, leading to depression, paranoia, all sorts of other problems. So we live in a society that says, if you're a problem, we're going to push you away. If you're a problem, we're going to lock you up because we don't have another solution and we don't want to be bothered by what you're, what, what's going on in your life. But here's the reality. That's the culture we live in. The culture is we, we, we turn a blind eye, we sit further away, we, we don't want to deal with it, we move ourselves away on the subway station. We don't look at them because then they don't have to talk to them. We keep finding ways to push them away. But if we're honest, and if you've been in a situation of mental trouble before, you know that sometimes the church can also be a struggle. Because not only do people get pushed away, but they get loaded down. Now, if you're looking at the text, they were heavy irons. They were these big chains that were weighing this man down. And so figuratively, thinking about it, these were put on by religious leaders. The religious leaders thought that the best thing to do for this man was to lock him down. And so we can think that the best thing to do in these moments is to push things on people. To push things on people. One of our texts just to give us an insight into this, is Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to these same teachers, and he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, burdensome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What Jesus is trying to help us do is a person with a struggle, a burden, a worry, a pain, to the religious leaders, the response was, stop doing that. Or start doing this. Do this, stop that, stop this. What's up with you? What's wrong with you? Don't do that. This person might be battling some debilitating mental struggles in their mind, and I'm pretty sure in that moment that they tried everything. And so when we go in and say, stop that, don't do this, what we forget is the person needs care before they need correction. They need love before they need a word. They need to know that you care about them before they're going to receive a word from you. Men, particularly, we, we, we get in these moments where it's, it's, it's seen as weakness to cry. And so you hear it. I hear it from young men on on the streets and on the train. Man up. What's wrong with you? I I watched, last year I watched as a a little boy, probably sixth grade, seventh grade boys on the train. I think he was getting his report card. Opened up his report card on the train. And he started crying. And a young man of color, so I, I recognize my ability to step in sometimes. I've I got to be careful, right? Because 
their, my, my ability to empathize and understand and their ability to understand what I'm trying to do. So I, I, I was watching for a moment. And all his friends started laughing at him. All of his friends. And, and I'm sure, you, you know, you, if you've got kids, you know, he's going home and having to show that report card to his mom, his dad, his grandma, his grandpa. And, and they're, they're laughing at him. And, and a few of his friends start saying, man up, man, what's wrong with you? It's just a report card, man. What's wrong with you? It's just, it's just grades, man. And, and we, we come into the church and we say, man, what's wrong with you? Just stop it. You see, like, it's, it's like when we try and go somewhere in direct, for direction. We ask someone for directions, right? And, and, and you've been there a thousand times, right? So you're like, you turn left here, and then you turn right here, and then there's a deli on the corner. You turn left over there, and then there's going to be, like, a broken street sign, and you think about that. You go in this way and that way, and the person's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't never. I, you lost me at the second direction. But we've been there. We think we know the way, right? Because we've been there so many times before. But the person's like, man, I just need help. <laughs> I'm asking for directions. You're loading me down with all these burdens. You see, we have to ask ourselves, when you see someone experiencing mental struggles, am I more eager to fix them or to hear them? Am I more interested in talking at them or listening to them? You know... And, I, and I, again, I, I try and spend time in a lot of different shelters and a lot of different uh, pantries. And again and again, what homeless people will tell you, maybe you've heard this, maybe you believe this, is the most important thing often for people is that they're seen. We, we walk by people all the time like they don't even exist. And then, or if we do stop and, we, and, we, and someone asks for change or they're struggling or they got stuff going on, or maybe it's the person in the workplace that keeps coming at you, right? And they're just like, I don't got time for this, man. What's wrong? You got to get your act together. I don't got time for this. You see, we, we need to recognize what Jesus wants us to know is that people are not a problem to fix. They're an opportunity to love. People are not a problem to fix but an opportunity to love. And so we need to recognize, we need to own up. What, what kind of help are we offering? What kind of help are we offering? Are we simply instructing? Are we ignoring? Are we pushing people away? How might my help need to change in terms of what I'm offering to people that are really battling it around me? The second reality, though, is we need to recognize, and the text goes into such depth of understanding, but we don't often look at it this way. It's not just we need to understand what kind of help we give, but really what people are facing. What are people facing? See, look again, it's connected to this. We, we sometimes avoid people, push people away, but the reality also is you live in a culture that keeps saying, me first, me first. I need to worry about me. I need to get from my space to my space and worry about me. It's my seat on the train. It's my dinner. It's my time. It's my life. And so people become distractions. People become hindrances. People become 
objects that get in the way of what I want. And we miss what people are really facing. Look at the way it's described in the text again and again. It says this man was unclean. He was shackled. It says he was cutting himself. Later in verse 7, we read that he's being tortured. Do we see those around us? Do we hear the heart cries of the people? Uh, going through the memory class with Pastor Gus last week, he shared the, just this beautiful story about being a teacher and having this, this, this student um, and he, who just sensed something was off and talked about how the, this, this girl had been, um, had been harming herself. And he'd just taken the time to notice that she was wearing you know, longer sleeves to school. Right? Didn't want people to see the cuts. Didn't want people to know what was going on. And like I said yesterday, it's like those people that are super outgoing, right? You have those friends that are just gregarious, always talking, always talking, and then all of a sudden it seems like in a moment they just don't talk anymore. But we don't think about it. They stop showing up to work. They show up to work late. They stop coming to events. They don't respond to your emails or texts. They just, they seem to go ghost. And we don't think to follow up. We don't wonder where they went. We don't wonder what's happening. You see, we have to recognize that we often don't see and hear because we're so caught up in what we need to get done, what we want to be about. And so we have to recognize that Jesus is inviting us to step in. See, the beauty of this moment is Jesus didn't step into this man's life by accident. He didn't step into this cemetery by accident. He stepped into this place on purpose. Now, just as a side, we recognize again, remember what I said, stepping into the cemetery meant that this man became ritually unclean. Jesus was willing to be accepting that consequence of being ritually unclean so he could help the man. Jesus is willing to step into our junk because he cares more about us as people than he does about his own safety. What are people facing? Do we see their needs? Secondly, we have to recognize not only what people are facing that do we see and do we hear, but it's complicated. Verse 9, when Jesus asks the name, and it says legion. So much could be said about this in recognizing what's happening, but legion literally meant, it was a war term, meaning 6,000 soldiers. So the minute this man says legion, everyone in, in, in Earshaw would understand that what he's talking about is that six, it's as if 6,000 soldiers are doing war on his soul right now. And so what we need to recognize in view of this in terms of what people are facing is it's complicated. It's complicated. We were reminded that hurt and suffering, PTSD, social isolation, anxieties, malnourishment, Poverty, all these things complicate. They accentuate. They make problems worse. And so when someone says, hey, I've got, uh, is, is it mental illness or is it, a, is, is it a demon? Yes. Is it, is it a mental illness or is it a spiritual sp- situation? Yes. Because it's complicated. 
The minute we just say it's a mental illness and don't recognize that there's, a, there's literally an enemy to our souls that wants to destroy and kill, that we miss a soul work that wants to happen in that moment. But the minute we only say that it's a demon possession, we miss that we live in a broken world, and because we live in a broken world, we live in broken bodies that are only going to be redeemed when Jesus comes back to take us to be with him. And so we need to recognize that it's complicated. It's complicated. See, it's like those pictures. I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures. I love these ones. There are, some of them are around the city where it's like one picture made up of a thousand little pictures. You ever seen those ones? I was trying to find one of Jesus, but they weren't, they weren't great on the Internet. So if I, I'll, if I find one, I'll try and share with it later. But it's like you see all these little pictures, but then you step back, right? You step back and you start to see how big and glorious and grand the picture is, Right? But what you're in real close, you can only see little pictures. And if you move further away, it just looks like a mess, right? We need to be able to see clearly so we can care well. And again, why it's important when we understand what people are facing is that we got to listen. we got to see, right? We step in. Guns are blazing. You need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to stop doing this, and you need to start doing this, and why aren't you doing this, and what's up with this? And it's just like machine gun of information. The person's like, man, I, I have tried all those things, and I'm still here. I'm still here. So we need to recognize it's complicated. It's complicated. So if we think about the help that we give and what people are facing, what gets in the way of us being able to see and hear? What gets in the way? What are the things that we have done or are doing in our life that masks, that hinders, that slows us from being able to see the needs and hear the needs of others? Are we too simple in our approaches? I mean, we're going to go there in a minute, but the complexity of people's problems ought to push us down to our knees and say, Jesus, I need you. It can't just be a simple moment of like, well, do this. Because it's human. Problems are complex. And people enter in with family history, psychological trauma, malnourishment, poverty. All these things complicate the issue. And so without thinking and seeing, we step in and don't know exactly what these people are facing. Lastly, though, which I've already alluded to, is what we need to recognize is that at the end of the day, when we step in and want to provide help for troubled souls, is we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to step in. We need Jesus to step in. And why it's important we say, we need Jesus, because again, here's the moment. We come in and we think, I got Jesus, right? I know Jesus. And so you need help, right? And it's no, it's no. No, we, we, we need Jesus, because, again, as a pastor, as one who's studied the scriptures, again, I can step into that space where I think I understand what's happening, and I'll just start speaking words. I'll just start speaking words. And they might be good words. They might even be words from the Bible, but it might not be the word or the right time or the right way. I need Jesus to step in to my life to show me what's best in that moment. Jesus shows us this. Their plan was to put chains on this man and push him off. 
Jesus' approach was to step into his life, to call out his name, and to give him hope in the midst of his brokenness. That was Jesus' offer. When everyone else was to say, to heck with this guy. This guy's a hot mess. I don't want anything to do with him. Jesus was like, no, I'm going to step into his mess and care for him. And you see this again and again. What you look, when you see in the Gospels again and again, what's beautiful about Jesus we often overlook is the number of times it says he hears and he sees. He slows down. He stoops down. And so why it's important, first, it said we need Jesus because that's what Jesus does for us. He slows down and he stoops down and he steps in to our mess. John 1 Jesus tabernacled. He literally set up camp in our junk so that he could understand us and then redeem us because he understands who we are as people and what we needed intimately as human beings. We need Jesus to step into our lives to show us the way to help, to show us the help he offers, to show us that he loves us, to show us that he's with us. We need Jesus. So the second part of this is recognizing it's okay to not be okay. Because Jesus didn't come for people that thought they were okay. Right? Matthew 9. Again, these same religious type teachers are sitting with, coming into Jesus at a meal and saying, why is he hanging with these folks? What's wrong with them? Why isn't he hanging with the, you know, the people that got it all together? And Jesus is like, I came not for the well, but for the sick. And so you could think in this moment, what, what, why, what's going on? And Jesus is like, I came for you. Your brokenness is why I came. I came because I love you and want to step into your mess to remind us that you don't need to have it all together. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to fix yourself. This is not about you having all the things together right now. This is about you trusting me even when you don't have all the answers. This is about trusting that I promise to finish a work that I started in you, even when you can't see the work going on. Jesus steps in. We need him. We need him to change the way we speak, to change the way we hear, to change the way we see. We need Jesus. 